Welcome to the People, Planet, Prosperity podcast, a joint production from Young Canadians for Resources and Canada Action. Today, we are really fortunate to be joined by Michael Harvey. Now, Michael, would you mind quickly introducing us to who you are and the organization that you work for? Sure, Sean. Thank you very much for the invitation today. So I am the executive director of CAFTA, the Canadian Agri-Food Trade Alliance. Um, just to start with who I am, I've done different things in my career. I grew up in rural Nova Scotia, studied political science and uh, law at the University of Ottawa and then at McGill in Montreal. Was briefly a corporate lawyer and then I joined Canada's diplomatic service and I worked for around 15 years at embassies abroad, a little bit of time in New York, but mainly South America. I ran the political sections of our embassies in Colombia, Venezuela and Brazil. Um, after that, I briefly ran an organization called the Canadian Council for the Americas, working on relations between Canada, Latin America and the Caribbean. Then I ran government relations in Latin America for a Canadian gold mining company out of Vancouver called Gold Corp uh, that was taken over a few years back by Newmont, an American company. I moved back to Canada, spent a couple of years as Vice President Policy International at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And now since July, I have been running the Canadian Agri-Food Trade Alliance. So what is the Canadian Agri-Food Trade Alliance? We are a coalition of agricultural producers uh, and processors in different parts of the agricultural value chain in Canada that export. Um, so I, I represent industries like the like grains, canola, beef, pork, the food processors, uh, so different groups, soy, uh, cereals in general, so different groups uh, uh, that export 90% of Canadian uh, farmers exports in one way or another. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I think that is such a cool uh, bio for going to this work. And one of the things that we love to do at YCR is really feature the um, diversity of backgrounds and opportunities that the resource industry offers. So it's really cool um, you sharing that. Uh, as a international relations grad, it's also going to law school. I'm like, wow, that sounds really cool. Um, and I'd love to talk about other stuff, but today we're talking about agri-foods. Sure. So why should Canadians uh, care about the work that your organization does? Sure. So, I mean, we're going to talk about the international trade policy of agri-foods because you'll note from my background that I'm not a farmer or a, or a producer. I'm somebody who knows a lot about international business and the international trade policy environment. Uh, I really count on my members to give me the information about the uh, agricultural industries that they represent. Why should Canadians care? I mean, agriculture is just such an important part of, of the Canadian economy. Um, agriculture is what feeds us, but it's also what gives us a lot of our economic development. And it's also a lot of our manufacturing. Um, one little stat that we throw out sometimes that people tend not to know is one in nine manufacturing jobs in Canada are in the food processing sector. Uh, so it, it, it's just a key part of our economy and it's a key part of our economy in all of the provinces. It's neat that you mentioned like that manufacturing manufacturing aspect, because I know a lot of people wouldn't think, oh, like manufacturing agri-foods, like they're so closely tied together. Um, and again, like it's neat to be able to show the importance of like agriculture, not just in terms of the farmers, but there's just this huge array of people who all are contributing and also benefiting from this with their livelihoods. Of course, I mean, you mentioned my background. Um, there's a lot of people 
like me, some people who trained in law, people who trained in accounting, people who trained in advertising, people who, who trained in the financial sector. Um, the, a large part of our downtown city uh, economy also depends on agriculture very directly. <laughs> so I'm curious, obviously we have people listening, they might be thinking, well, agriculture, not really my, my interest. Obviously you come from a background that, as you said, not a farmer, very different, you know, origin story there. What gets you interested about this? What do you find fascinating and enjoyable about the work that you do? Sure. So a little bit of this is coming back to uh, where I grew up. I grew up in a village of 250 people in Nova Scotia. So while my family didn't farm, uh, our neighbors did and uh, had people in the family in terms of uncles and stuff who farmed. So it, it wasn't a, a world that was far away from me when I grew up. And it wasn't what, what my family did. Um, but you know, I've been representing Canada abroad around 20 years of my life. And I guess I, uh, I, I'm very interested in the areas where Canada has a strong competitive advantage and where, where we're really world-class. Um, I, I had the experience of working for the mining sector for seven years and now in agriculture, similar. Canada is really world-class in this field. And, and I just love working in these areas where Canada's got something important to offer the world. I want to dig into that a little bit more because one of the really important things that I think a lot of Canadians don't know is the professionalism and standard of practice in so many of our resource industries, whether mm -hmm. it's mining, whether it's, uh, you know, natural like oil and gas, whether it's agriculture. And I think it's interesting to see, well, how do other people view us, right? Because it's one thing for us to talk about it, but then for other people to say, no, that's, that's actually true. So in your interactions representing these industries, how do people from outside of Canada view Canada's industry and practices? So I think in general, people see that the Canadian industry is at a higher quality standard um, in terms of the products we offer. That's something that's very well known among your more sophisticated buyer around the world. Um, your more sophisticated individual too would, would have very clear that Canada's sustainability standards are, are much higher than the global, than the global average, right? So I think your sophisticated uh, interlocutor knows these things. Um, it can be more difficult for a broader public. And I do think Canada could do more to have a Canada brand for, for us to just put the maple leaf on a lot of products in a way that people know where it's coming from. Sometimes the commodity nature of a lot of products makes that difficult, um, where the global value chain is to, is to sell your product to multinationals that'll then use products from different countries, which can make it more difficult to brand you for, on a national basis. I like how you mentioned the idea of like developing that Canada brand. Um, I know we have a whole bunch of shirts at the office that says, I love Canadian agriculture. I love different Canadian industries. Why, you know, how do we do that? What's a way that we can start developing that Canada brand? Well, one of the priorities we have at CAFT is to work with the Canadian government on trade diplomacy, on uh, the work of our diplomats abroad who, who represent Canada in, in the trade field. Um, some of those diplomats are agricultural specialists. We're working with the Canadian government now, uh, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada is the name of the government department that's responsible for setting up the Indo-Pacific Agricultural Office. That's part of the, the government's Indo-Pacific strategy. That office is going to be opening in Manila, the Philippines, early in the new year. Um, they'll soon be naming their executive director. Um, and we 
think it's just so important to have a group of Canadians out there uh, explaining Canada's top standard uh, agricultural inspection systems, the reasons why regulators in other countries can totally trust our system, um, help sometimes translate the way our system works into the, uh, you can say language, but it's not just, it's not just linguistic language, it's the, the language and the thought processes of regulators in other countries who might have been working with their own system for, for decades and, and not be familiar with ours. Um, so it's really important for us to have people out there selling Canada and selling the quality of Canada. Who knew that working in Canadian agriculture might mean you set up shop in Manila? I think that's really cool. It can. There's, a, there's actually agricultural attaches in, in a lot of Canadian embassies abroad. Um, when I was living in Mexico, there were always representatives of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And you also see people like the government of Saskatchewan has representatives in different countries around the world who are uh, their trade representatives in general. But uh, due to the nature of Saskatchewan's economy, I mean, agriculture is at the top of what they do. Well, that's really neat. And again, like for anyone listening, like this is definitely stuff that should be considered as career options. You know, Canadian industries are a global uh, career opportunity. Um, I just want to be curious, so the, these offices that are set up around the world, are they essentially uh, working with um, government agencies, regulatory agencies, and potential buyers overseas to kind of uh, share why Canadian products are, are so good? That's right. When you're, when you're working in an office like that, you're, you're opening doors to, to a large extent. Uh, people from the, from the host country will call you up and say, I'm looking for, for something out of Canada. Who can I talk to? And you've got the knowledge to be able to hook up with the networks in Canada to be able to work with that person. You'll also work with the people in Canada to help them understand what the local environment is, um, what direction should be t- you be talking, what direction should you not be talking, who your competition might be, who else is strong in the market. So it's that mix of Canadian knowledge and experience and the local knowledge and experience that you bring together to give uh, Canadians a competitive advantage. It's a competitive world out there, right? Other countries do the same thing. Um, we need to support our producers in a, in a way that helps them shine in, in markets that otherwise they might not know. So I think from hearing this, like it's clear already that obviously this industry is important given the uh, work that's being done to promote it all around the world. Uh, and I want to dive into that a little bit more here. So what is the importance of the export industry to Canada's uh, agri-food industry? And with you mentioning mentioning the manufacturing jobs to Canada as a whole. Yep. So, I mean, 90% of Canadian farmers export in some way, right? And, and I'd mentioned different things. Um, I mean, this is an industry that also feeds Canadians directly. But when, when you look at the products that are exported, most of the Production goes abroad. If you look at something like cereals, grains, soya, um, so it's it's very important that we have these foreign markets. Otherwise, we really wouldn't have the critical mass necessary to invest in improving things at home. Right? Um, you you're able to spread your investment out across your your whole value chain. You're able to build up a value chain that makes it easier for people to break in, that makes it easier for people to sell abroad. Um, if we weren't able to export, we just wouldn't have nearly as useful an agricultural sector to feed us. We wouldn't have these strong rural communities. We wouldn't have the strong rural economies. 
it, it all comes together. If we were to just look inside of Canada, we'd be a lot poorer country in the agricultural sector. It's it's neat that you know the the agriculture industry, especially on the small scale, right? The like the average producer, they are part of this global uh, food network, uh, and that they are you know, the global food network is important to them, but they're also important to that global food network. And and that's kind of the point I want to look at now is um, how important is Canadian agriculture to the rest of the world? No, so around uh, I mean the numbers vary, but we're around fifth, sixth, and the biggest exporters in the world. Um, at a global level. So we, we contribute a lot to the international food system. Um, in particular in North America, as always, like the level of integration in, in the North American economy is very high. We, we have these deeply integrated supply chains that makes it just so much easier for Canadians and Americans to work together. But more and more uh, in different countries around the world, and and one region that I think it's very important to look at is the Indo-Pacific, like I mentioned, where you've got really fast-growing middle classes who are eating, consuming more calories, higher quality calories, um, people who are moving to the cities, uh, earning higher salaries, want to live a better life, and part of living a better life is to have better quality food, and it's an area where Canada really shines. So we're going to circle back a bit to that issue of food security and opportunity in a minute here. But I just want to take a step back and kind of look at how does your organization go about achieving these goals? So we, we're a very small organization, right? Basically, we lobby uh, overwhelmingly the Canadian government um, to ensure that the interests of our members are, are taken into consideration when the Canadian government makes its decisions. So we, we lobby at the level of the Canadian executive, the government itself. We lobby a lot at the level of parliamentarians. I'll, get, I'll give you an example. There's a problematic piece of legislation. It, it's called Bill C-282, a private member's bill that has passed through the House of Commons and is now before the Senate, that basically would handcuff Canadian trade negotiators legislatively so that in the future, when they negotiate trade agreements, they wouldn't be allowed to discuss the supply managed industries in Canada. We think that this is a very bad piece of legislation. Um, so we play the role representing our members of going out there right now, talking to senators, trying to convince the senators that it's a bad idea, that they should vote against it, or at a minimum propose amendments to improve the bill. Um, we're in the you call it the Ottawa bubble, um, where you go out there on, on Parliament Hill and try to get your point across. So overwhelmingly, we concentrate on lobbying the Canadian government. We concentrate on lobbying parliamentarians. And we do uh, more public communication, like writing op-eds for newspapers, doing interviews, um, done interviews on Canadian TV, Canadian uh, newspapers and podcasts like this one. Uh, to try to get our, our our position out there, but we we when we communicate to the general public, uh, this is where I go into my role as sort of a strategic communicator, which is something I've worked at for almost thirty years now. Um, always understand who you're trying to influence. When we work on the opinion of the general public, it's not just so that the so the general public thinks positively about us; it's so that the general public plays into the political decision-making process 
because it's specifically these legislative decisions and administrative decisions like how trade agreements are negotiated or, or implemented that are what we're trying to influence. That's really cool. And it's, it's, it's a big task, right? Because again, like we primarily focus on that younger audience. And mm -hmm. obviously what we come across is there's certainly a big role for education, right? A lot of people, it's not that they, oftentimes it's more so it's because they don't know that they hold a certain position mm -hmm. rather than having thought through something through no fault of their own, right? I mean, this is complex, often very abstract things that don't seem to apply to their daily lives. And we, we really, you know, pride ourselves in the way we try and make it clear that yes, like this actually really is important to you. Um, and kind of, yeah, for the, for the average layperson, then could we go a little bit more into what bill C 282 is? Uh, and, and from there, what would you like to see? Like, what are some of the policy positions that you think would really effectively, um, strengthen our, our export industry for agriculture? Sure. So B, BC 282 is an example of the Canadian political system shooting uh, itself in the foot, essentially. What it is, is uh, a private member's bill uh, that was presented by the Bloc Québécois. Um, I don't know what the level of political knowledge or parliamentary knowledge of your group will be. Some of them will have studied political science or Canadian government. But a private member's bill is a bill that is presented by a member of parliament and not by the government. Um, so this bill, what it does, it, it, it basically says legislatively that Canadian trade negotiators cannot modify the what are called the tariff rate quotas, the quotas that allow import of products in industries in Canada that are administered through the supply management system. The supply management system, as its name indicates, is a system that basically uh, limits how much supply there can be in a market. So in, in Canada, particularly in milk, in chicken, in eggs, producers have a ceiling on how much they're allowed to produce. They own a quota and the quota allows them to produce a certain amount. This is a, a system to protect our industries that Canada's built up over the years. And basically these industries, well, they export very little. And they're very concerned that trade agreements could mean that other countries could export to Canada, that Canada would be importing. And uh, so they, uh, at least this Bloc Québécois member who presented the bill, um, thinks that it would be important to legislatively prevent our trade negotiator, our trade negotiators, sorry, from from discussing these issues. CAFTA's position is that the bill is totally unnecessary. Our trade negotiators have always protected supply management because they get instructions from the government to do so. And if we start having legislative restrictions on what our trade negotiators can discuss then other countries will do the same thing to us, meaning that we'll end up with less ambitious trade agreements. And that's bad because we as a country should want to export more. It also means that other industries in Canada will start asking for the same type of exemption. Um, and again, this is bad because it means that we'll have less ambitious trade negotiations. And we think it's particularly bad in the current context. And the reason why is that in 2026, there's gonna be a review of the Canada-US-Mexico uh, agreement, Kuzma, as we say in Canada, Azmeca, as the Americans say. Um, 
2026 is just after American elections next year, uh, Mexican elections next year, and Canadian elections. We don't know exactly when because we don't have specific dates for our elections, um, which means that the discussion of the review uh, is going to start taking place uh, now. Um, and it's becoming part of the political cycle. And we think that Canada, by adopting legislation like this, is just putting a big target uh, on its on its head, um, saying, be careful with Canada. It's not a trustworthy partner. Um, we just think it's a bad idea. So it's in the Senate now. Um, the Senate is known in Canada as the Chamber of Sober Second Thought. Uh, the senators, they're not elected in the same way that members of parliament are. Uh, the bill went through Parliament, we think, not because most members of Parliament thought it was a good idea, but for political calculations, basically related to um, how uh, the political parties see the elections playing out. And sometimes that sort of political, collect, uh, political calculation can lead to bad policy decisions. In this case, we think it's a terrible policy decision. And senators who don't have the same uh, elect electoral necessity and who are constitutionally there to provide a little sober second thought. Well, senators can take their time, study this and see that it's a really bad idea. Interesting. So I want to uh, pose a question here. Um, say we have a listener in Quebec and maybe they have some ties to the dairy industry there. And they're hearing this and they're thinking, well, I'm just worried though, that if we uh, don't do this, then my parents who work in the dairy industry are going to be negatively impacted. What do you have to say to that? So the answer to that is that uh, our, our trade negotiators get instructions to protect those industries. Um, and we should trust that system and not try to legislatively handcuff them. Legislatively handcuffing will just gum up the works completely and make everything worse. Um, the other thing I'd say is that if you're a Quebecer, you also have a lot of export industries. Um, whether it be agriculture or, or other industries. Um, you also depend on the international trading system. You import a lot of things in your daily life. Uh, the last thing you want is for countries like Canada to be going against uh, an international trading system that's fair and open. Well, thank you for that insight. Um, so I'm curious, you mentioned before that, you know, with the uh, upcoming and starting very soon or having already started negotiations for a new uh, North American free trade agreement, um, we're looking at potentially three brand new elections in, in, the, in the time span that this will be occurring. So uh, your organization, how do you strategize for that level of uh, potential variability in who will be leading negotiations, political climates? That seems like a very complex environment to be making policy decisions in. Sure. So there's the, there's the famous Yogi Berra expression where he said that it's always difficult to predict, especially the future. Um, so you don't predict the future. What you do is you map out possible scenarios, right? So you map out possible scenarios of what could happen in Canada, what could happen in the United States, how those things could play out. Um, that's an important thing to do. But understanding that you never really know what the future is going to bring, the most important thing is to prepare your arguments um, about what you need to protect, what you need to push. You want to make sure that Canada's negotiators know that you're there with information for them whenever, whenever necessary. 
Uh, also, you need to push things a little bit. Um, people generally in life uh, do more if they're pulped or the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, as my grandmother used to say. Um, part of the role of a lobbying organization is just to be out there and to be active and to make sure people don't forget about the interest of your of your members. Um, the way, I mean, the way this town, Ottawa, works is, is that uh, politicians respond to people who reach out. Um, you have to understand the constraints that politicians are under, what they need, um, prepare things in a way that works for them. Know that you're working with very busy people who are dealing with uh, just a massive number of different topics. So you prepare the information for them in a very easy to digest way. I spend a lot of my time doing meetings where I go in. Often I'll just get half an hour with the senator and we'll go in and spend around 10 to 15 minutes explaining uh, what we want, um, hearing around 10 minutes of how they see things and then handing them over in a very easy format uh, our arguments so that they can refer to them. So yesterday, a senator spoke in, in, in the Senate about C-282, saying why she thought it was a bad idea, Senator Paula, Paula Simons from, from Alberta, um, and she referenced uh, CAFTA, saying CAFTA has been saying that this is a bad idea because of this, this, and this. Well, that's when you know that the job is, uh, the job is having an impact, right? So before going back to the issue of um, food security, I do want to touch on one thing here because um, it has some some parallels to some of the work we look at, which is how can we cross the aisle, like build bridges between people with varying uh, views on resource development. In Alberta, very often we will run uh, uh, sessions with people working in the oil and gas industry, young Canadians, and we're like, wait, well, how can we talk with people who maybe share what might be opposing views to this industry? How can we have a meaningful conversation? So obviously in your work, you're speaking with uh, politicians and various individuals who come from all sorts of backgrounds and perspectives. So from your experience, both with CAFTA and the mining industry, what's the best way of having a meaningful conversation with someone who might not agree with you? So the first thing is to always be respectful. Right. Um, even if somebody doesn't agree with you, there's no sense in motivating them more by making them dislike you. That uh, that's not going to help things in the slightest. Um, people have different perspectives, and and that's democracy. Um, I, I think what you have to be. Somebody asked me yesterday or the other day when I was giving a presentation, um, how are you always objective? And I say, look, it's not my job exactly to be objective. It's my job to present the arguments of the people I represent in the best way possible. Um, but it is my job to come up with trustworthy information, right? So I put together the information from trustworthy sources. I show the parliamentarians that we're talking about real people, real Canadians um, with real interests that we're not just talking in the air. Um, it's important to bring things back to people all the time, uh, bring things back to stories. Uh, I'll go, I worked at a bit more granular level in mining because I represented a specific company, which had often specific minds. Um, and I think in this kind of work that uh, doing the classic thing of just throwing like 50 statistics out there so that none of them stick in your head isn't the best way to communicate. The best way to communicate is, is ideas. And often it's through stories. 
So if you're at a more granular level uh, at the mine, we would do videos uh, showing the, the life story of truck drivers uh, at the mine, for instance. Um, people can oppose an industry in the abstract, but it's a lot more difficult to just write off people, right? So I think it's important to get the personal side across um, when representing your industry. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And that's definitely something we try to do. And to any of our listeners, if you are interested in hearing some more of those stories, check out YCR's newsletter where we do feature various perspectives on Canada's resources industries. So I said a while ago, we were going to circle back to this food insecurity. Um, obviously, for a number of reasons, this is a very pertinent topic. Um, obviously, we know that there are various food issues and insecurities around the world. We know that for various uh, political reasons, weather variability, for whatever reason, often food becomes an issue. So how uh, how does the Canadian agriculture industry address that need of food insecurity and what can we do to even better do that? So we're pushing at a global level for a fair and open international trade environment. We think that international trade is how you get the food from where it's being produced to where it's needed, right? And food insecurity which can be caused by things like conflicts. We've seen the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, which had such an effect on the international grain markets um, and a lot of the shipping routes. Um, if there's a disruption in the supply from one part of the world, the fastest way to solve those issues is gonna be to get supply from other parts of the world. And the way to do that is to have a fair and open environment that can respond quickly. Supply chains can respond very quickly when they're able when uh, they're allowed to what can be difficult is that people can and countries can fall into protectionist mode very quickly when there's uh, uncertainty so we've seen different countries that start slapping like export uh, restrictions no we can't export our rice india says because uh, because we we need it here, Indonesia's done that sort of thing too. It's it's very problematic. It means that less food's going to get to those who most need it. Um, I mean, obviously, every country has its stocks, and that's totally fine, and and that makes sense. Canada has stocks. Everybody has their stocks. But a fair and open trading system will allow the food to get to the people who most need it most quickly. That's at the level of food security, the way you tend to discuss it and say an international summit. I also go up a level to talk about people who maybe aren't in danger of hunger or, or not, not getting their bare minimum of calories. And I talk about the people in the world who are a bit above that level and are eating better than they would have in generations past and really want to hang on to eating better than they did in, in generations past. It's your fair and open international trade environment that's gonna allow them to get access to quality food at a price that they can afford. Whereas if every country tries to grow its own food, um, then everybody will have lower quality. And it's really important to think about complementarity too. I mean, you're Canadian, most of your listeners are Canadian. You know that we have something called winter um, and that, that means that there's just not that many tomatoes or asparagus or strawberries floating around in January, February, March. We import food. We produce some in greenhouses and stuff, and that's great. But we import a lot of food. And the way we import things is we pay for it. And the way we pay for it is by exporting 
things, including food. Um, we, I was talking to somebody from the embassy of Ecuador recently, Canada and Ecuador are looking at a free trade agreement. There's been preliminary discussions. Well, the Ecuadorians, they sell things like bananas, um, fruits and vegetables, often in the winter to us, they buy our grain, they buy our wheat. Um, they don't grow that in, in their more tropical climate or in the parts of their country that aren't so tropical. They don't have near the land, the level of, of the amount of land uh, necessary. So it, it allows both Ecuadorians and Canadians to eat better. And Mexico would be the, the clearest coast example to us. Mexico and the United States, California, Florida. We're not growing the same things. It's, it's trading back and forth that allows all of us to eat better. I think a key takeaway from that is if you want to see the impacts of the you know, free trade in the world, go to your grocery store and look what you have in, uh, in February on the shelves. Indeed, and look at how a supply chain can pivot. Uh, you might remember the beginning of the pandemic when there was panic about not enough boxes of pasta and this and that. That, past, that panic lasted about a week, right? Um, global supply chains can pivot very quickly and, and solve these problems if they're allowed to. But if everybody had gone into a panic at that moment and stopped the free flow of agricultural goods, then we would have seen big spaces open on the uh, on, on, on the shelves. And it's the case at different levels of, of development. I was living at the time in Mexico in a medium, that's a medium development, uh, what's it called? A country with a medium level of development, not one of the poorest countries, not one of the richest countries, medium level. And again, in the supermarkets in Mexico, within a week, uh, things were things were working. That's thanks to supply chains that are able to adapt, right? Absolutely. Well, thanks for that answer. So I want to close off with one final point here. Um, you spoke before about your role in uh, not just speaking to members of government, but also speaking to the public who have a very active role in indirectly in, in establishing policy. So what is your vision for Canada's agri-food industry and how can the average person in Canada play a role in achieving that? Sure, I think as a Canadian who lived around 20 years of my life abroad, maybe you start seeing your own country with a little bit of critical distance. And every time I've moved back to Canada three times in my life, every time you move back to Canada, you see things not exactly with the eyes of a tourist, but you do have a bit of a new perspective. And what I say to Canadians, one thing we really got to get over is our tall poppy syndrome you know i don't know if you know that uh, expression the idea that you've got a field of poppies and one of them is growing higher so what do you do you cut that you cut down that poppy because it's messing with the with the vision canadians have been doing that way too much with our resource industries like mining oil and gas and with our our agriculture i think there's way too much pessimism and and way too much cynicism um uh, about uh, the parts of our country that really, really work well. I think there's a lot of instability in the world right now. It, it's got people nervous. And that's the time when we should really be concentrating on the things that we do well. And agriculture is one of the things that we do well. The other thing I'd mention is sustainability. This would go back a little bit to what you were saying about people who don't see the world the same way uh, that you do. And there's a certain activist sort of mindset that says, well, agriculture is responsible for a lot of emissions, so agriculture is bad, right? The same sort of thing is said about uh, natural resources. Say first, 
we're going to eat. So we're going to have agriculture. So really the question is how can we do our agriculture in a way that supports those goals that can, that can create fewer greenhouse gases, that can use less land, and, and that's going to come through agricultural improvements. That's going to come through things like GMOs that some people are nervous about, um, not because they're looking at the science, but because they, they've just got fears that are, that are being driven by things that are not scientific in nature. Um, we've got a real opportunity to reduce uh, the amount of energy and land that we use to, uh, to produce the food that we need if we embrace the science, right? And the other thing I'd say, it's interesting in my last job at the chamber, I worked on the issue of green jobs, green professions. This is interesting for your listeners, a lot of whom are in university. There's a certain number of people who say, well, I want to work on the, on the climate transition. I want to work on, on the environment. So they want to know, like, what's a green job? Well, what I would respond to that is working for agriculture or natural resources to be able to produce what it does now using less energy. That's a green job. Like the way you make the economy greener is by taking the things that exist and that we need uh, and doing things in a more efficient way, in a better way, um, in, a, in a way that helps in the transition. We, we, we're not going to have a green transition by stopping to produce food because we're not going to stop to produce food. We have a green transition by producing food more efficiently. And that's something that people can work on in all different sorts of ways. I do it in my little way as a lobbyist. Well, thank you. Those are some amazing takeaways for our listeners to have. Uh, everyone, that was Michael Harvey with the Canadian Agri-Food Trade Alliance. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for the invitation, Sean.